MD PhD is the career path for people who are smart but indecisive. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, do you want to be a doctor? Do you want to be a medical doctor? Do you want to be a research doctor? And we went both. <laughs> do you just want to hang out in a hospital setting and then in a lab? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So and this but, is the but, place for you. Jamie, welcome to the Neural Network. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It uh, came to fruition. Jamie came up to my poster at SFN, Society for Neuroscience, and with one of the most, um, I guess, intelligent moves that I've seen in a long time, gave a microphone and said, here, can you record a little snippet for a podcast? And I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. And uh, not only did it make me think about interviewing people like that, but it also made me buy a lapel clip microphone because I hadn't had one before. And I thought, you know what? That's just kind of handy. And it worked pretty good. Yeah, they were pretty handy. Um, I was doing a lot of research right before SFN on what kind to get. But yeah, the idea just sort of came to me. I was like, I could go ask people at this conference to talk about their posters. (laughs) And not so many. I got like... 38 different people to record their posters for me. Oh, wow. Yeah. And finding people for podcasts is not always the easiest, especially. So I like the neural network kind of weird in the fact that we have like a lot of science stuff, but we also have jujitsu things because I practice jujitsu or whatever. And yeah, so it's kind of a weird mix. But anyways, uh, you know, when you find someone that wants to talk about fighting people, that's pretty easy. But when you want to find a guest that wants to talk about their own science, it's eh, sometimes a little bit iffy, but eh. yeah. So 38 people within a weekend is, is impressive was what I'm trying to say. Yeah. There, there but, were a lot of no's. There were a lot of people who were like, I don't think I want to do that. And then I felt awkward. So then I just asked them about their poster anyway, but didn't oh, yeah. record them. Um, <laughs> just turn on the mic in the back. Like, eh, just keep no, talking. no, 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 no. <laughs> And a lot of the times, like, they would say they didn't want to be recorded because they didn't feel confident talking about their poster. And I was asking them to talk about it, like, in plain English. And then they'd start talking about their poster. I'm like, this would have been fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're great. You're, you're great. I know a lot of them are good speakers because it's, you know, half of science is the art of delivery of the science. Very true. Which is often missed. So, anyways, you're uh, you're pretty busy these days, it seems like. So, MD, PhD student at WashU, which is yes. uh, impressive, uh, and it is. So, we, we do a lot of patch clamping, and so I have a great nice. appreciation for uh, WashU in St. Louis, which is sometimes known as the mecca of electrophysiology sometimes. Um, I'm not well, sure if I'm, it is anymore, but... <laughs> I'm glad to be there. My PI is certainly, he's an electrophysiologist by training, and... Yeah a very brilliant man and very like he taught me how to patch clamp I was really um I was really anxious about it because I had tried in undergrad and my experience of doing EFIS in undergrad was like them showing me how to do it once and then being like go at it and I was like I kept just doing dumb things like breaking the little glass pipette and just you know like not really being able to get the whole mechanics of it down. And so I gave up and then I, 
several years later joined this very EFIS heavy lab. And I was like, you know what, we're, we're going to try again. And so I actually am in the middle of, well, not literally right now, but I'm in the middle of an EFIS experiment at lab. Ah, nice. I, we had a, I had a similar experience where I started in the lab and, you know, here's a, a rig, go, go nuts, figure it out. And yeah. I had come from studying goats. And so I had no idea what was happening. <laughs> and, and then, you know, uh, I did a bunch of experiments. I got some data. I thought it was really cool. And then I came back. And then I remember in lab meeting, I asked the question, I said, what does it mean to compensate for resistance? And then I realized I had oh. to throw everything out. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. So I sympathize with just poking things and seeing what happens. And then finally, the the person that ended up finally teaching me, they pulled me to the side afterwards. They were from WashU in St. Louis and said, mm -hmm. let's actually learn how to patch clamp. I said, that'd be, that'd be nice once in Who a while. Who was it? But, uh, Agwan. Aguan Wei. He is a he's in our lab. He uh, actually has a potassium channel named after him, the Shaw channel. Oh wow! Uh, the the AW in Shaw is Aguan Wei. So mm. yeah, he's a relatively famous electrophysiologist, I guess. So yeah, it's, I'm pretty it's sure a, I've heard of him, but I've never directly interacted. Yeah, is a great person to learn patch clamping from. But my every time I get about ten minutes in, and then it's like mind blown. I have no idea what's there's too many numbers and diagrams. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so with the MD PhD program, um, this, so when, what, what got you into, I guess, science in general and what made you realize that you wanted to do the, the medical science training program or the MD PhD type of, of route? Yeah. I mean, science in general uh, was always my, you know, favorite subject in school growing up. Um, both of my parents are in medical fields. So my mom is a pharmacist and my dad's an optometrist. And I remember my mom got me like one of those little like chemistry, like you make little molecules by putting balls and sticks together. Um, and so like she and my dad, like my dad would encourage more like a love of anatomy. My mom was much more chemistry focused. So like my parents really encouraged my love of science. My teachers did. Um, and I actually... As for the MD PhD thing, I actually started out just MD. I was like, huh? um, I'm gonna do medicine. That's kind of what I had wanted to do from like my junior or senior year of high school. So I went through, you know, the entirety of undergrad. I was pre-med. I applied to med school directly out of undergrad, got into Wash U um, for the MD program. And I did the first two years as an MD student, not a PhD student. And then I was kind of staring down this prospect of going into third year, which is when you do all of your clinical rotations. And I was like, I don't feel ready to do this. It's, it's a lot. It's like the most intensive year of medical school. And I just kind of backed off and was like, let's not do that right now. So WashU lets you do this thing called an MD5 year, which is basically to just throw a research year somewhere into your training. Um, mm. It's very useful if you're trying to get into competitive residencies, but I kind of used it to like take a step back from medicine and see what else I might want to explore because I was really young. I had gone straight through undergrad into med school and hadn't really, you know, I'd done research in undergrad like we were just talking about, but I hadn't really ever considered that as part of my career. So I did this research year, not in the same lab that I ended up in for my PhD, but the my research advisor in that lab was like, hey, you should apply for the MD-PhD. It's really obvious that you're passionate about the science. And I had like rediscovered this love of science that I had that like 
you know, my, my undergrad research experience was pretty rocky. And so I had thought like, oh, maybe this isn't for me, but doing this kind of reignited my desire to, you know, do research on top of medicine. So I applied to like internally transfer into the uh, PhD. And, and then you saw the light of the research. I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> no. And now, and now like I've, I've fully caught the research bug. Yeah. Um, and yeah, now I'm, I'm four years into my PhD defenses on the horizon in about a year. So that's always the loaded question. When is your defense? Do you have a date? Oh but <laughs> one of my, one of my MD PhD classmates actually asked me this recently. I'm like, you should know not to ask that. <laughs> it's a forbidden question in the world of research. It's right. the weird thing is, is I don't know about you, but uh, like for, at least in my experience and a lot of people that I know that went through grad school and stuff, and it's like your, your head is down the whole time. And then suddenly they set your defense date like three weeks from like you had no idea it was coming. And then all of a sudden, yeah. like you're defending in three weeks. Like, wow. Okay. We're almost done. And yeah. then you have to wrap up really fast, but it was no different than when I, you know, um, ended up getting a, a faculty position. It was like, you're just doing your postdoc thing. And then suddenly you get an interview and then now here, figure Man. out how to run a lab. Actually, you're like, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> but that's exciting. So, um, you know, it's, it's always cool to see, um, sort of the dynamic between there's always this like handshake, um, I guess, collaboration between the research and the medicine. And especially when you're at an institution that has both. And it's always, I, I find it fascinating to see towards the beginning, you know, it's always like, I want to do medicine or I want to do research or whatever. And then after a couple of years, after graduating, you do see a lot of sort of clinical based um, sort of morph into wanting to do some research and, uh, mm -hmm. being able to have both of those avenues as training is, is, is pretty cool. So, so you went in then and, um, you got into neuroscience. Yes. And so, and so you said that you, one of the labs you just ended up rotating in was the first lab that you rotated in a neuroscience focused lab then? Yeah. When I, you know, when I did research in undergrad and then when I was thinking about what research I wanted to do in med school, like if I was going to do science, it was going to be neuroscience. There was no question about that in, in my mind. I just, the brain had always been so fascinating to me. And so that was like, I'm a very indecisive person in general. And I like to say that MD PhD is the career path for people who are smart, but indecisive. <laughs> like, like, do you want to be a doctor? Do you want to be a medical doctor? Do you want to be a research doctor? And we went both. <laughs> Do you just want to hang out in a hospital setting and then in a lab? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So and this but, is the but, place for you. Yeah. The neuroscience part was always the thing that was set in stone. I was like, this is this is what I have to do. This is what I have to learn about. So yeah. yeah. So is that so so is then for uh for your clinical based, are you looking for like a neurology type of of type of thing or are you going to go full swing and just go for something completely else, have neuroscience research and then have like dermatology? No, not dermatology. <laughs> I don't like dermatologists. I'm sorry for any dermatologists who might be listening to this. I don't um, think we have a huge dermatology basis, but if right, we do. Not, it's not the derm network. <laughs> yeah. If we do, that's, you know, we can, we can throw shade at them. That's fine. <laughs> yes. It's, but no, um, I'll have to see what I think of my neurology rotation. Um, I had been leaning psych 
before oh yeah starting my phd um and i'm still strongly considering psychiatry but so the actual department that i'm doing my phd in is the anesthesiology department um because i'm studying pain and that kind of gets rolled into anesthesiology's whole deal so and we're kind of in the pain center there's a whole you know floor of research at WashU dedicated to understanding pain, understanding chronic pain, understanding how to treat it. So that's where I am. And honestly, anesthesiology has started to sound really appealing. Um, and not just for the lifestyle, because I know that's what people think when people are like, oh man, I want to go into anesthesiology. They're like, you know, they realize you got to be there for every surgery. Yeah. <laughs> they realize you have to sit in the room for every surgery. <laughs> yeah. No, so but actually, I was just recently talking to a fellow at WashU who works in the pain clinic. He is going to become an attending this summer, and he was describing to me because I'd asked what the pain clinic side of things was like and what they do. And actually, that sounded pretty ideal to me. He was talking about how like interdisciplinary it is, how they work with you know many different. Um, fields of medicine and also many different professions so you've got like physical therapy and occupational therapy you've got you know mental therapy because being in chronic pain is is a difficult time it's it's not easy um you've got uh you know anesthesiology does a lot of the procedures and a lot of the physical like management of the pain but it's kind of like all wrapped into one and you, you know, you see patients, you do some procedures. It feels pretty, you know, all encompassing as a subfield of anesthesiology, or you can get into it through physical medicine and rehabilitation, which Mm. I would maybe do. I would maybe do an elective rotation and see what that's like. Yeah. The pain world is, is interesting. And a lot of uh, places are starting to form sort of uh, pain research centers, if you will. So like here we have the, uh, NAPE Center, which is the Neurobiology of Addiction, Pain, and Emotion. And so it's sort of all wrapped into into one. Yeah. And there's always that um, intimacy with the anesthesiology departments where there's, um, I, I think like for anyone that's unaware, the, the anesthesiology uh, departments host a lot of the neuroscience research as far as like an academic appointment. Um, yeah. in a lot of, in a lot of institutions. So, so with the pain, it's, you know, cause I study opioids as well. Um, it sort of got dropped on, on my plate. I had no intention of ever studying opioids and then, you know, <laughs> you know how that happens. It and, yeah, it <laughs> and then, you know, you're going to get interested in whatever you're studying anyway. So here I am. But, uh, you know, when, when you got into the opioid field, was that something that was just sort of dumped on your plate and then you stuck with it? Or was there a, uh, sort of a, a interest in studying pain and opiate type of, um, research before? Um, it was really sort of more what you were describing. Cause I was, you know, all of a sudden now in this PhD program, didn't, anticipate being here, hadn't applied to WashU looking at any faculty I might want to, you know, do my thesis research with. So I started looking around for rotations and I ended up doing one in the anesthesiology department to begin with in a different um, professor's lab and really liked it. But during my rotation, she accepted another graduate student. So it suddenly became impossible for me to be a graduate student there because that was kind of, you know, at the max of what she could accept at that time. So then I 
but I really like loved the environment. I worked really closely with this postdoc who I developed like a friendship with and I was pretty interested in the research she was doing, which was kind of more on the uh, like addiction side of things than the pain side of things. Hmm. Um, but then I was like, well, let's go see about some other area of neuroscience. So then I rotated in a lab in like fully in the neuroscience department doing, um, they were more working on, oh, I'm trying to remember, like understanding like dynamics of PKA. It was like really, really molecular. Um, and I, I thought that the research there was interesting, but I didn't really like, you know, I, I watched you kind of the neuroscience department feels pretty siloed off from each other. Hmm. Um, part of this was because the, I was doing these rotations in 2020, which is famously a great year to be <laughs> I was like, say, that's, <laughs> that's a tough year to start research. <laughs> it is, but I made it work. Um, but it just felt very like isolated and my whole like, two and a half months that I was doing a rotation in that lab, I was felt like very cut off from everybody and pretty just like unmoored um, within the broader context of research at WashU. And then I was hunting around over winter break for a final rotation because I didn't actually like the person I did the whole year of research with that much. And I couldn't be in that one person's lab. And I felt really isolated in the la the third rotations lab. So I was like, let me find another one. Um, and I really lucked into um, my uh, thesis mentor advisor is Brian Kopitz. And he was just start starting his lab in uh. the anesthesiology department. So brand new, like nothing had been set up yet. But my po the postdoc who I became friends with in uh, the other anesthesiology PI's lab, Megan Creed. Uh, so the, the postdoc from her lab was like, hey, Brian's opening his lab. Do you want to, like, he's looking for students um, and I hear you're looking for rotations. So I was like, this one had better work out. <laughs> and it did. And I kind of knew it right away. So it was not at all driven by the science. And I think you said earlier, like, you'll just get interested in whatever you're researching. And that was really true. I, you know, dove into the research that he was working on, which was this combination of gene editing and tool development, and then applying that to opioid receptors to understand like pain circuitry. And I was like, whoa, this is so fascinating. So it was really driven by the mentor and not, you know, a, a need to study opioids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I had, you know, my, my advisor in graduate school had always said, pick the lab based on the environment of the lab and mm -hmm. not on what they're researching because whatever it is that they're researching, you're going to, you're going to dive so deep into it that you're going to end up falling in love with whatever you're researching anyways. So just go somewhere where you can actually do your research, which, uh, seems like you've embodied that. Okay. So with the, with the opioids, yeah. you know, um, it's always fascinating to see different sides of the opioid story. There's the, the aspect of pain and pain management, which is of course mm -hmm. what the opioids are actually you know, Four. originally intended yeah. to do. <laughs> and then you have sort of the addiction uh, part of opioids as well, because it's a very addictive substance. So you can study addiction with it. And then you have sort of the other side of the things, which is um, reversal strategies and looking at its sort of cardiopulmonary or cardiorespiratory um, effects on how do you prevent someone from dying from an overdose. So it's a very multifaceted field yeah. of research. And so you said you're, you're in the midst of the 
sort of mapping the pain circuitry through opioids? How does that work? Yeah. So I'm more specifically focusing on a region of the brainstem called the RVM, which is in the medulla. It's like, you know, right above the spinal cord. Uh, And there are decades of research on this region about how crucial it is for um, descending pain modulation. Uh, So basically this area of the brain, it sends projections down to the spinal cord and like synapses with uh, those like pain neurons that are coming from the periphery and can, can like really participate in pain modulation that way. So really key area of the brain for that. And thus, you know, a key area of the brain for studying chronic pain, because, you know, one of the things that happens in chronic pain is that this ability to modulate pain signals goes haywire. And so all of a sudden you've got, you know, something that's not painful being interpreted as painful or something that's only slightly painful being interpreted as super painful. So got to understand this area. And I started delving into the literature on the RVM and it's got all these opioid receptors. It's really like you know, interconnected with the PAG. Uh, but there's such heterogeneity of like types of cells in the RVM. And there wasn't really any good research on what these different types of cells were doing. And you know, they all express the opioid receptor. So I'm like, what are opioids doing to each of these different types of cells? And so I said earlier that one of the like research focuses of Brian's lab was like CRISPR gene editing and tool development. So my first paper was on more of a tool development side of uh, using CRISPR gene editing to kind of be able to more specifically go like edit genes in more specific cell types. And so then now I'm using that to go into each of these different types of cells in the RVM, knock out the opioid receptor and then test the animal's responses to acute pain and then to chronic pain and basically tease apart like what is the functioning function of opioid signaling for each of these different cells in this part of the brain. So what's your take then on on all the the buzz around implementing CRISPR into in the humans for the gene editing? How's that? <laughs> <laughs> oh fun. Yeah. <laughs> That's you know not my research. I this is in mice. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think from an ethical standpoint, that's really interesting. From a philosophical standpoint, that's really interesting. And you can get into trying to think about, well, I guess like take a take a personal example. So my grandmother has ALS. Luckily, it's pretty slow progressing. She's actually, she got diagnosed with it when I was like 12 and I'm 28 and she's still around. Um, you know, obviously she's lost some degree of like motor function in that time but she's still here so that's good but it's also the type that she has is genetic so like she could have passed it on to my mom etc and so that I'm like now that would be like you know a good application of CRISPR gene editing because it's something that like you know it's obviously bad and you know (laughs) I think that she would rather not have ALS and you know the rest of my family would rather not have the potential to have this this gene kicking around so that would be pretty great if if we could do that but yeah you kind of get on a sliding scale of what its 
ethically acceptable to use it for. Yeah. And it gets into questions of disability, which I think are really interesting and is like an aspect of chronic pain and like the pain clinic that I think is like an interesting one and one that I want to like really delve into and like listen to disability advocates on because you could get into things like, you know, different um like intellectual disabilities is it acceptable to use CRISPR for that is it acceptable to use CRISPR to like if you have a like a genetic cause of deafness I think that these are a lot more touchy and ethically gray areas yeah yeah, it's 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 always. I mean, it's like it's the it's the bioethics of it that comes into play when it's you know because like in the lab with CRISPR, like you know, like you've used CRISPR before, like we can do it very well in a mouse. Just like it's yeah, it's almost like by the time that it reaches like pop science in the clinic, like you're already on to the next technique. Like CRISPR's already in the back. Like, I, <laughs> like you know, like sometimes you see a CRISPR thing now, and it's like, oh well, you know, why didn't you do it some other genetic way? And they're like, well, it still works. <laughs> Right. It's still but, a very, very effective technique, but yeah, but it's, but it's interesting though, with, uh, with, with, um, changing some of the genetic makeup and seeing how it affects, like, do you see in some of your, in your mice, when you're changing the different genome structure of, um, you know, different cells within the, the RVM, is that the rostroventral medulla or the rostroventral medial medulla? No, yeah, well, it's the same part of the brain that I study, so I should know, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, breathing, breathing is around there. Breathing, too. it's it's somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah, but <laughs> um, you know, with with some of those genetic modifications, do you see that there is either a heightened or a lessened sense of pain within these mice just from the g- genetic modifications themselves? Yeah. So so far, I don't have a lot of the data from the CRISPR edited mice, but I did more of a traditional conditional knockout. So I had floxed OPRM mice and injected a Cree virus to knock out um, the, you know, mu opioid receptor that way in a non-cell type specific manner. So any cell type that was in the RVM uh, got the, got the mu opioid receptor knockout. And it was actually really interesting and one of the reasons why I wanted to delve into the different cell types is because we got a unexpected result from that. There was a change in pain like sensitivity, but it was decreased pain sensitivity. So oh. we we're doing an assay where um, we had these mice on like a glass plate and you shine like radiant light at their paw. This is called the Hargreaves assay. And, you know, at a certain point, they'll lift their paw up and like flap it sort of like, you know, if you stepped on hot concrete, you'd be like, Oh, I don't like that. Um, So we time how long it takes them to do that. And the mice that had the mu opioid receptor knocked out in this brain region actually had longer latencies. So they were less sensitive to the thermal pain. And I was like, what? (laughs) Why? There was, oh, I don't remember what it, someone was doing a research, someone was doing that same experiment in uh, one of the other labs in in our institution last week, actually. And because I walked by and I saw the little light thing and I walked in and said, yeah, well, yeah, I saw the little light platform. What the hell is that? And then so, so I asked him like, what, is, what are you doing? And uh, so then I saw it for the first time and then 
And I said, well, that, you know, that mouse looks like it has a lot more pain than the other one. And it said, well, that's the one that has a, you know, a mutation to enhance inhibitory signals through, you know, uh, opioid based signaling. I thought that's backwards. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think it really just highlights how much we don't know. Cause I was like, oh yeah, you know, knock out this opioid receptor. The opioids can't bind. And then, you know, the cell, you know, the, the descending pain modulation will get messed up and then there'll be more sensitive pain. And it turns out, no. <laughs> turns out it not was, the case. It was like it was when I started active. patching motor neurons with fentanyl and found out that, you know, it was depolarizing them instead of hyperpolarizing. And I thought, okay, yeah. I'm give up. I don't, biology is playing a trick us on us at this point. Well, so that's interesting too, because, and, you know, so one of the drawbacks of mouse research is that mice are not tiny people. Um, and so I'm assuming you were patching a mouse motor neuron or a rat motor neuron or something like that. And yeah. one thing that I've learned from the people who do like opioid self-administration on our floor, so people who are sort of more in the uh, like addiction side of research, the mice get hyperactive when you give them opioids, which is yeah. not what humans do generally. Yeah, it makes and, it tough to study their breathing because you give them the fentanyl and they just walk in circles and they don't stop. Right. And so you're like, what? <laughs> you're, like, I, you're like, can you stop moving so I can get your breathing? Yeah. So that's bizarre. And so I'm wondering if for some reason, like if you were to record from a human motor neuron and apply like fentanyl or damgo or something, would a human neuron hyperpolarize, but a mouse mm. neuron? depolarizes and this is part of why mice get hyperactive with opioids and humans get bit. Yeah. <laughs> or or maybe it's the anticipation, you know. That's what I mm-hmm. I had this weird hypothesis of, of like a psychological effect of like the mouse doesn't know that the opioids coming and so it just feels weird whereas right. a human <laughs> is sort of like anticipating it. But of course ethically you can't blind people to right. whether or not they're giving an opiate, but it yeah. would be interesting. But that does bring up an interesting point, though, that you talk about with the the dissociation between sometimes the the murine or the mouse or the the rodent type of research and the human research. And when you're putting it into aspect of your studies, when you're mapping um, these, some of these neural pathways and looking at how they um, sort of interact, what sort of translational strategies do you think of or do you put into practice in order to um, you know, take your results and be able to have them inform for the clinic. Yeah. So, I mean, currently my research is very rodent focused. Um, but one thing that other members of my lab and then other people on our floor as well, um, we just recently got this big like multi-center grant to have a like human tissue core, like a human tissue center, and we had actually already had part, parts of this program set up and my PI and others will actually go to donor surgeries. So like when someone comes in and is going to be an organ donor, they, the surgeons do all of the other, you know, remove the vital organs that are going to go to someone else. And then, you know, at the very end, uh, our labs have been approved to take out the sensory neurons, the like DRG that are right along the spinal cord um, and then record from those and kind of map what we know about like mouse and rodent DRGs onto what we're learning about human DRGs and building up this database um, 
using patch seek. So like recording the electrophysiological properties, injecting them with like biocytin to look at their morphological properties, and then also doing single cell sequencing to look at their uh, like genetic properties and to understand what different types of neurons are in human DRG and then mapping what we know from our mouse DRG studies onto human DRG to better understand like what can like what can we even apply from our mouse research onto human like sensory mm-hmm. neuron uh, physiology and then what kinds of you know treatments can we develop for different human pathologies based on that or just how can we better understand how human sensory neurons are working so one of my long-term goals is to actually get more into that human research. And my PI has mentioned getting approval to get other neural tissue, so like spinal cord tissue and potentially like lower brainstem tissue. As you can imagine, it'd be hard to start cracking into the brain and getting usable. Yeah. You have to keep it alive. The reason why the DRG are so like <clears> – <throat> Are the starting point is that they're just right along the spinal cord and you can plunk them at some like artificial CSF and bubble it and keep them alive. Um, Once you start getting into larger tissue, this gets progressively harder. But that's kind of one of my medium term goals is like during a, you know, research residency, for example, to do more human tissue work. And then my like big ultimate like pipe dream, I guess, would be to have this pain clinic, right? And optionally for people at the pain clinic to enroll them in a study that, you know, when they eventually pass away from whatever, like, you know, hopefully many, 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 many years and decades down the line that they would donate their neural tissue to to like a different branch of like this research core that would then be able to like, we would have their whole detailed medical history because one of the issues with these human donors is we get really in uh, or like inconsistent medical history. Sometimes mm. we get a lot more information. Sometimes we just know like age, sex, and what they died from. <laughs> so it would be a lot more useful to have their full medical history. And if they have a long history of chronic pain, then we can try to understand, again, using this whole patch seek idea, how are these genes and how are the electrophysiological properties of the neurons different from healthy controls? Yeah. So how does it, you know, I, one of the things that's always, I'm, I'm curious about with some of the human studies is that, is the, the, the fact of the healthy control human type of, of tissues. And so, you know, like one of the tough parts of doing human research is that you can study some disease progression or some disease tissue or something like that. But there always has to be some sort of comparison, yeah. you know, like, like how is it different from a controlled tissue? But in, unless you were able to enroll subjects to the point where it's like, Hey, can I have part of your brain, especially with the brain stuff? Because a lot of it's, a lot of the tissue comes from like epilepsy removal yeah. of parts of the brain or something. And so how does it, you know, like how with your research, do you look at you know, um, let's say a patient with chronic pain, for example, and you get some DRG neurons and, and this is sort of during the, you know, pie in the sky type of thing. And it's sort of like, how do you apply the information of, okay, you get DRG neurons from patients that are in chronic pain and you see some of their electrophysiological principles. Is there a way to 
take that information and be able to understand certain treatment options without the, like, let's say having the same access to control subjects? Yeah. So I guess one way I could think of would be if their pain is lateralized to have ipsilateral and contralateral DRG. So if, for example, they had some kind of nerve injury in their right arm, um, to use as a internal control, which would also control for, you know, many other different factors like people being different and just having different physiologies um, to have DRG that were from, you know, the same side as the chronic pain and DRG that are from the opposite side and to like internally compare that way. This would be more difficult if you have something like um, fibromyalgia or um, a more global chronic pain syndrome because then all like everything's going to be affected equally. The other way that I can think of is that, like I said, um, my, like the whole pain department basically is already doing these DRG like patch seek studies. And obviously, like I said, we don't know that much about these patients, but on an aggregate, we can assume that they were, like approximately the mean healthiness and amount of pain as the average American adult. So you could do, you could use, and one of the points of this um, like pain pain center that we got a grant to develop or like human tissue core that we got a grant to develop is to also develop a database. So you'd have a um, big data, like data set that anybody can go and access. So in this hypothetical future, I could use that database as a control and, you know, the patients as the, you know, group that, I, that I'm that i studying and use various, like, statistical methods to basically, like, regress out the con- contributing factor of chronic pain versus, you know, all the other stuff that people have going on with them because they're people who live messy lives. <laughs> is there – so this is – this is a curious one, and this is this question is somewhat meta, I guess, but yeah. the idea of the perception of pain. So, like, pain itself is, uh, I guess, a perceived um, phenomenon, right? And so, like, mm-hmm. you can have the pain signals, but if you don't perceive them as painful, then, well, it wouldn't be necessarily painful. Um, and so, with that, when... I know one of the things that makes pain research and, and even opiate research in the pain side of things somewhat muddy is the fact that you can give the exact same stimulus to different people and their perception of that pain is going to be completely different, despite the fact that if you record, let's say, the neural signaling, it's equivalent across individuals. How is the, you know, like when when you're when you're looking at ways in order to best control for studies and, you know, as as someone that is looking at perhaps, you know, the pie in the sky, opening up a a paying type of clinic, which, which is really cool. You know, is there anything that you know of, or is there anything that you can somewhat get a rough idea of how much pain a person is experiencing it like at a time versus like a, like a quantitative measure of how they perceive their pain or, is right. that not necessarily even that important? And the oh, only reason yeah. I at, the only reason I ask is it kind <laughs> of segues into some of the things of misuse and abuse, and right. some of that comes from the fact that even from a like from physicians trying to prescribe 
the pain pills, you might have someone that on paper isn't experiencing pain, but to them, they're really in pain. Right. And, it's, and there's no way for you to necessarily know one way or the other whether they are or they aren't. And so do you up the medication? Do you stop the medication? Like it's a it's kind of snowballs into this whole thing. Right. Yeah. Because on the one hand, you don't want to overprescribe opioids and then contribute or exacerbate a like existing dependency. But on the other hand, you don't want to underprescribe someone and then they're living in pain which is bad objectively. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's almost like the, the schizophrenia thing sometimes. It's like, I know that, you know, whatever it is that's there is not there, but to them it's real. And like yeah. what's real to you is what you perceive and they perceive that. So, it's, you know, to them it's real. <laughs> yeah. Now this is such a multifaceted question and this is one of the reasons why it's such a good thing that the pain clinic is so interdisciplinary because you can get a lot of different issues addressed at once. And if there is a like psychological component to a patient's pain, like that can be addressed at the same time that you're also managing the physical symptoms of the pain. Um, I guess in terms of quantifiable measures of pain, this is obviously like, as you pointed out, the reason why you're asking is this is still such an open question in the field. Um, and, you know, kind of comparing it to the research in animal models, all we have are quantitative metrics of pain. All we have are latencies to withdraw their paw from a painful stimulus or how they react to a, you know, something poking their foot or more like less reflexive measures like looking at home cage behavior and how much they're hunching or how much they're grooming themselves and and using newer methods to try to interpret those and come up with a more holistic pain score. But all we have are our attempts to quantify animals' pain, which are pretty, like, you know, flawed because they can't tell us. But then on the human side, even people being able to tell us how much pain they perceive that they're in doesn't totally solve this problem because like you pointed out it's subjective and not only is it subjective to person to person but it's also context dependent it's also attention dependent it's also like you know dependent on myriad other factors and so difficult to control for and understand when someone says that they're in this much pain what that means for them. And you can try these quantitative metrics. Like you can do the same, like applying a painful stimulus to a person. You can, you know, try to quantify all these different things. You can ask them about their activities of daily living to get that more holistic picture. But I think like you pointed out, like all of this can only go so far into really like understanding how they're experiencing their pain and the, ultimate question for a prescribing physician is whether or not to prescribe drugs. Um, and I think one interesting thing in the field of chronic pain treatment is that now we are developing non-opioid treatments and not just medication, but one of the coolest things to me are um, peripheral nerve stimulation, DRG stimulation, and spinal cord stimulation for chronic pain. And basically what this is doing is it's retraining that pathway 
because it's gotten out of whack right now it's responding to like any kind of touch as pain but it's like these kinds of implanted stimulation devices are retraining that pathway to understand that not everything that it experiences is painful and so i think those will be a crucial part of moving the pain field away from to opioid or not to opioid. Yeah. And with their, you know, with the, the opioid stuff that you're studying in particular, looking at the circuitry, um, do you envision that there could ever be, let's say a type of opiate that is not addictive? (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, basically not addictive, but, but essentially being able to effectively modulate pain without being addictive and not only in the sense of a patient with chronic pain, but of course with some of the, the mechanisms that cause pain relief also usually come euphoria to an extent. Right. You know, cause it's all kind of, it's like intrinsically in our body wired together. I know like right? pain makes you alive, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like <laughs> one of those things. Like it's, you know, when you look at some models of complete pain inhibition, they're worse off. Like you, you need pain. Like- right. Well, yeah. Cause I think it's, I think it's worth pointing out that pain in a healthy baseline state is important. Um, it is, it is a useful signal of, Hey, there's something in my environment that could be hurting me. And maybe I should take steps to not be in that environment anymore. Uh, so yeah, um, there are, there are people who are born without like a genetic mutation where they don't have a particular pain receptor and they tend not to live very long because they'll hurt themselves and not realize it. Um, cause they, yeah, it's wild. Like I, it, you know, during the, some of the, the medical school courses that I took, they were going over what, you know, some of the conditions of complete pain loss. And I mean, it was, it, it's a brutal condition. I mean, they would just, you know, put their hand on a hot burner and not even notice. And suddenly you have your, you know, your whole hand is burnt. Right. Well, and there's a behavioral component too, where they will actively seek out activities that would be harmful to them. Really? Uh, Oh. Yeah. No, I've I've seen. I suppose, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's a like, like, like what's going on there. I don't, I don't know enough about the condition, but yeah, even, even with just the accidental exposure, it. Yeah, pain is a useful signal, so you can't get rid of it entirely. Uh, it's like inflammation. Like, Sometimes yeah. it's your friend. <laughs> yeah. What you do want to do is make sure that you're not – like the the problem is when it becomes not a useful signal anymore. So when it's yeah. saying all the time like, oh, my God, something's wrong and I'm in pain when absolutely nothing is happening. This is not useful at all. Um so that that's kind of what needs to be treated. And so, yeah, to disentangle useful pain signals from chronic pain or retrain those pathways to have the right response to the right kinds of stimuli again. And then also from a medication standpoint, yeah, I mean, like our internal opioid system, because like our own body releases opioids, is also – euphoric if you ever did you do a sport you do jujitsu um i did cross country and swimming growing up um because i have absolutely no hand-eye coordination (laughs) (laughs) 
So, I was a cross country skier in college, so that's uh, what that's what paid for my college. So I am very uh, familiar with going in a straight line as fast as you can. Yes, yeah, run, <laughs> running for me and not skiing. But I also like cross country ski for fun when I'm back uh, with my family in Connecticut because it doesn't really snow much in Missouri. As yeah. It turns out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, my cross country coach would talk about like endorphins being released like after a good long run and the endorphins that your body releases after a workout or in moments of stress are serving the purpose of dampening the pain that you're feeling because your body's doing something else that it needs to be doing but it also like makes you feel euphoric and that's just the intrinsic function of these opioid receptors is that they have both of these properties and so I think one thing that some areas of this field are trying to figure out are, is this a property that's kind of inherent to the opioid receptor or is it the opioid receptor on a particular like population of neurons? And so if that's the case, could we potentially have a more targeted approach where we're able to direct the like opioid drug pain modulation just to the neurons that are going to be modulating the pain and not to the ones that are located in the like reward centers. But then that's difficult because a drug will inherently diffuse. So yeah. Is, yeah. There, is there a way to retrain the endogenous uh, pain dampening or the endogenous release of opiates? whether it be endorphins or enkephalins. And I'm just thinking like, you know, with, with running or with, you know, whatever sport or whatever, you sort of get that runner's high and it's sort of yeah. a self, it's, it's a, it's a self-induced release of natural painkillers within your yeah. body. And so it's, it's sort of, if you look at it like a release of endorphins over time, there's sort of these waves kind of like, you know, insulin with food or with, with glucose or with, you know, a high dose of sugar or something like that, yeah. you know, is there, you know, do you know anything of whether in certain pain conditions there's a loss of the normal reactivity of the normal endogenous release? And is it is it trainable? Like, can you teach the, the body to, okay, now release more endorphins when this is happening? So I don't know about the release, but all of these systems operate on feedback loops. And so one thing that happens and one thing that drives opioid tolerance when you've been taking opioids for a long time is that when these neurons are getting such consistent opioid signaling, they will actually, and it brings them above, so they have like some baseline level of opioid signaling. And then taking opioid drugs will bring them much above that physiological level for a long time. And this will cause the these neurons to internalize their opioid receptors. Mm. So bring them into the cells. So they can't be accessed by the opioids anymore. So this reduces the cell sensitivity to opioids, which kind of protects, you know, the brain wants to maintain a steady state and having this opioid signaling above steady state for a long period of time is not desirable for it. It likes its baseline. Um, but for the person, whether they're using the opioids for pain relief or recreation or both, the functional effect of that is that then you have less opioid sensitivity, uh, which is not great. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about how this affects the release side. I would imagine that also 
opioid releasing neurons would release less opioids in the context of having exogenous opioids on board all the time. That's mm. at least how it works with serotonin. Like when you're taking serotonin reuptake inhibitors, yeah. uh, your actual neurons make less serotonin. And so then you have to wean yourself off of them very gradually to get your neurons to start making that serotonin other again. Otherwise, like it's just a sharp drop off and yeah. everything that your brain and gut to uses serotonin for is haywire, haywire for a while. I just, I filled the perfect stereotype there because my mind went straight to, oh, it's just like anabolic steroids. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. And I, I I called myself out as like a gym rat immediately. Uh, well, I called myself out as a depressed millennial. So. Yeah. <laughs> we both fit the stereotype. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. But it is it's similar in, in the sense that it's uh, whether it be antidepressants or whether it be anabolic steroids, the, the fact of trying to retrain the exogenous release is sort of an interesting uh, idea of of putting into a, a novel therapy. See, it's so multifaceted the way that the opioid system is is working and and ways to to modulate it. And it's always it's always good because I feel like sometimes with your own research you get so you know pigeonholed into this little tunnel of research and you forget about all the other aspects of even the system that you're studying. Right. And uh, pain and opiates, nonetheless, are are certainly at the top of, of different modulating um, or different pathways in order to modulate their function. But, you know, with, with um, I guess, with the science part itself and being able to have access to information on every side of these things, you know, um, one of the biggest things comes down to being able to communicate that science. And obviously you're doing a, a podcast in plain English podcast. So how did you, you know, in the midst of med school and everything else and, and <laughs> PhD school figure, yeah, hey, I want to do a podcast on some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, so I'd had the idea for a while. I actually found a document from pre 2020 with ideas for this podcast. And one of them was like highlighted uppercase in bold letters, vaccines, <laughs> <laughs> which ironically, I still haven't done an episode on vaccines. Uh, I still haven't found a immunologist to come talk to me specifically about vaccines. But yeah, um, I made one video one time on vac or on COVID-19 and I got shadow banned faster than you could snap your fingers. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I was literally I was just like I was plotting the data of just like CDC data of like different health metrics and correlating with like, it was like births in COVID-19 and how like it affected the population waves of, of births, you know, because like mm -hmm. normal births during the year have sort of a um, diurnal type of fashion. And so like you could see the effects of the stay at home from, you know, shifts on the births. Uh, and then, <laughs> Interesting. And then I got banned. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I was like, I was just plotting data. I'm a real scientist. I promise. <laughs> right. But we, we need to understand how sheltering in your home affected. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I work at a children's hospital. <laughs> I feel like I'm a I'm a I'm an advocate for this. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, we, we have to we have uh, to succumb to the <laughs> the uh the the pressure of the, the podcasting. Yeah, no, so I, I had had the idea for a while and then in twenty twenty one and I've also also always wanted to do science communication and make that a significant part of my career. 
Uh, it's very important to me. And so in 2021, I applied for and got accepted to uh, the – it's called ComSciCon, so like Communicating Science Conference. Um, oh, cool. So I, I got accepted to that. It was unfortunately virtual because this was still the COVID times. Um, and for in like in preparation for that, I was like, I'm going to get it together and put out the first episode of this podcast so that I can have something to show my fellow science communicators at this the conference that I went to. And then it was actually really useful that I did it that way because, yeah, I, I – when I was able to tell people, hey, I, I just started this podcast, check it out. And then I have a bunch of other people that I'm talking with a bunch across a bunch of different, different disciplines who also want to do science communication. So I'm like, hey, now you all can come on my podcast that I now have and talk about your science. So my first like several episodes were mostly people I met at that conference and that helped get me off the ground. And so now it's been two and a half years. I'm in season uh -huh. three. This is crazy. <laughs> just seasons night. I just, I just add up I, the episodes. <laughs> I shouldn't because I don't meaningfully take a break between seasons. Yeah. But I don't know why my brain, like, I think most of the podcasts I listen to do seasons. And yeah. so I was like, this is just how you have a podcast. Even if you have absolutely no delineation uh, between, in, between seasons, you yeah. just. It's like when you watch a TV series on Hulu and the seasons are irrelevant because you just binge watch anyways. <laughs> keep you know, going you just keep going it's like I'll, i sometimes you'll get you know into an episode and you realize you're two seasons back from where you thought you were or something like that yeah. or two seasons ahead and you're like oh we're already on season three but anyways what you know what is what are, has podcasting especially about science you know in or, or just podcasting in general has it taught you anything about the the scientific field in general that you may have not had the chance to learn otherwise Ooh, well i i guess just in terms of the actual concrete science, I've learned so many things that I wouldn't otherwise because I get to talk with scientists in different fields. Like it's not just neuroscience and it's also not just the like hard sciences. I have um, talked to a lot of like I've talked to an anthropologist. I've talked to like social scientists um, in addition to neuroscientists, immunologists, physicists um, and just learned crazy shit um, <laughs> but also on a more meta level i think i've developed an appreciation for the methods of other areas of science because i think also one thing that you can get siloed about is only understanding how your little field of science does like what kinds of methods it uses what kinds of statistical analyses it uses how what are the conventions in presenting data what are the conventions in putting that data in paper form and so reading all these different papers because every episode we like go over a paper reading all these papers of different fields has also showed me the like diversity in how different fields of science report their data um mm. which i think is interesting um and yeah <laughs> Then you, get, then you get then you get swept up in all the interfield drama as well. <laughs> you oh, start to man. see you start to see all the inter like rivalries between research in different fields, which I found entertaining. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it's very fun. Um, 
And then also I've gotten to talk to people like a sub theme of my podcast is just like open science. So I've gotten Mm. to talk to people about how we can make science more open and accessible. I got to talk to, um, this was a, this was a fun one. Uh, almost a year ago now I talked to Michael Eisen, the now former editor in chief of eLife. Yeah. Um, that, that turned into a debacle. Oh, that was a whole thing. <laughs> so I have thoughts on that if we want to have a little tea session. Um, <laughs> but I talked to him and I talked to Alexandra Obakian, which for those who don't know, she is the founder of SciHub, uh, which is where you can go get science articles if they're behind a paywall. And yeah. You yeah. can't access them. So that was super fun. And so I got to hear a lot of like their thoughts and some like behind the scenes things of how at the time, like what Michael was thinking about eLife and then how like Alexandra was, you know, conceptualizing her work with SciHub. And so that was a fun, a fun time. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. We had, uh, I've, I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit that we've used SciHub. So, I mean, oh, yes. you, you I have to at some point. Yeah. Even even Wash U doesn't subscribe to literally every journal. And yeah. so sometimes you just encounter papers that you can't access and you're like, let me go put this in Sci-Hub. So the, the most frustrating I found is when like my own paper wasn't you know open access or something like that. And I needed yeah, to it costs you know, like, so much money. I I because it costs so much money. But like when you like after you publish a paper, there's a lot of iterations of it. There's like different red line. There's different like there's a lot of versions and you don't really remember which one is the final, final, final yeah. that got published. And so sometimes you want to just download your PDF of your paper so that you can send it to someone because they asked for a paper. And then I look it up and I don't have access to it. And then I go mm. to SciHub and then it doesn't show up on there. And I thought, I don't have access to my own paper. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, Damn. that's tis the tis the uh, art of keeping access to papers but anyways thanks for coming on the show jamie do you want to uh plug your your in plain english podcast yes um yeah so in plain english science um that is where you can find me um currently we're having weekly episodes because i'm still releasing all of those uh sfn shorts from the conference in november but uh you can check out just search in plain English science on any podcast platform to find it. You can also find the papers or the posters, uh, depending on the type of episode at in plain English org. And our socials are plain English sci on all of the, you know, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. So that's P L A I N E N G L I S H S C I. Nice. And stay tuned for the Jamie, all-encompassing pain clinic coming up in a couple of years. Uh, you know, by a couple of years, you mean like a, a decade or more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're going to hold our breath, but we'll definitely yeah. wait. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Jamie. It's so good to have you. Thank you.